all those highs and all those lows, at the end of the day, they're going to go away. Everyone's going to go away and it's going to be you and the writing left over and you have to be okay with that. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Jasmine Kaur Dio grew up in northern British Columbia, where she spent most of her childhood daydreaming. She loves books that can make her laugh and tug at her heartstrings in the same paragraph. When not wrapped up in stories, she can be found biking, playing the harmonium, or struggling to open jars. TJ Power Has Something to Prove is her debut novel. So please welcome Jasmine to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. What's the harmonium? A harmonium is, it's like a cross between an accordion and a keyboard is the best way I can put it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Cool. So we're going to talk about your journey to publication today. And we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Sure. So I think like a lot of writers, I was one of those people who wanted to be a writer since I was very young. So I think I was around seven or so. And at that time, I was like writing short stories and picture books and illustrating them and writing poetry that was questionable in quality. But, you know, (laughs) my parents are very supportive. And my father in particular, he's been like a really big supporter of my work since day one, (laughs) since I was seven years old and to now as well. Um, So my parents were really encouraging. And I don't really remember what was the thing that made me want to become a writer, to be quite honest. It was just, you know, one of those things. And then in the following years, I kept on working on my writing and I kept on trying to write longer things. The problem being, especially when I was younger and as a preteen, is that I really didn't have the attention span to (laughs) write like longer books, um, longer forms of writing. And I would get to a point where, you know, I would get bored with what I was writing or I didn't know where to go or I was stuck, which are not uncommon problems even today. But Mm -hmm. um, back then, I didn't really have the tools or the resources to figure out how to go from there. So that was the first couple of years of like my attempts at writing. When I went into high school, I stopped writing for a little bit or I stopped writing seriously. It wasn't that I gave up on, on this dream. It was more like I think other things took my attention. I became more of a like a big reader. I was one of those kids that read a book a day. And I did a lot of drawing and art and stuff like that. And I still wrote. My writing was more like short stories and poetry for contests and like classes mm. and stuff like that. So I was still doing it, but like not a lot of it. And then when I went into undergrad, sort of in my late teens to undergrad, I started watching more TV, which <laughs> I don't know, this is kind of weird, but... I'm not really sure why, but up until I was like 16, I didn't really watch TV or like watch movies. Like the cultural zeitgeist of like everything like was like over my head all the time. <laughs> I had to like catch up on like references like Star Wars and all these other things when I was in my late teens. But at that time, that's when I started to get more into TV. And through TV, I started to get more into fandom as well. Mm. And I had kind of dipped my toes into fandom like as a teenager in high school as well, just like reading fan fiction now and then. But it was more once I joined these TV fandoms that I started to get more enveloped in it, not only like the fandom community, but also doing more fan fiction myself and writing more fan fiction myself. And it was through doing that that I started to, I guess, find some community. 
there were a lot of people who really liked the fan fiction I wrote and some of the fan fiction I wrote in the small fandoms that they were in um, became fairly popular. I'm still like to this day very grateful for the people who really encouraged me, who said really kind things about my writing, even though I was a complete stranger. Like a lot of the support just blew me away. Like there's people who would like do fandom podcasts and they would talk about my fan fictions, people who would like make fan edits and fan videos and like fan art and like fandom is such like a supportive and like amazing creative experience. Um, but that experience is what sort of gave me the courage to try original writing again, um, mm. because so many people had said like, I would love to read something else you wrote that was original. You should try to get published and stuff like that. So it kind of gave me the courage to try this again. And I think too, I had given myself more confidence because by that time I had written multiple novel length, like hundred K fan fictions. So I knew I was now physically capable <laughs> of writing a story <laughs> that long. And so I decided it was time to try again. But I also knew that writing fan fiction is very different from writing original fiction for many reasons. But one of the reasons I think I was more successful in fan fiction was because I had like instant feedback and I had like a lot of encouragement. It wasn't like I had to write the whole story and then get feedback. Uh, I could write 20K and then post that and see how people responded. So I needed some way to like keep myself accountable, which is easier in fandom because people are always telling you like, please write the next chapter. <laughs> For myself, when I was writing original fiction, I think the idea I got was inspired from Rochelle Mead, the author of Vampire Academy. Back in the day, I would stalk her live journal account, and she used to put the word count of whatever she was working on at the bottom of each post that she put up. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really good idea to keep myself accountable. Like if I have to post my word count, like say on a weekly basis, then I can like publicly shame myself if I'm not working <laughs> on it. So that was my rule. I was like, I'm going to write every week. And like the only rule is that the word count has to go up, even if it's just by one word. That was my only rule. So I started posting my word counts on like my old Tumblr and then uh, later on my Twitter in like Twitter threads, like every week I would just post my word count. Sometimes it was pretty pathetic, but I'm proud to say I never <laughs> missed a week. Like sometimes there was just, there was, there was a couple of weeks where there was like five words added. <laughs> but the point is that it, it forces you to return to that work. It forces you to remind yourself that it's there and to like never like forget or never let it fade from your memory really. So that helped me build my stamina and helped me build, I guess, a process towards writing original fiction. And that's how I completed my first novel. And that's when I started to turn more seriously towards publication. Nice. So how did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how to query, how it works, everything like that? So I think my first exposure was probably in high school. I somehow picked up an edition of Reader's Digest. And in one of the articles, they talked about this little blog called Query Shark, uh, which I'm sure you know about and probably a lot of your listeners know about as well. But for those who maybe aren't familiar, Query Shark is a blog run by a literary agent and basically, she invites people to send her their query letters, and then she publicly like roasts them, basically. <laughs> um, the point being to improve people's query letters and to help people see how they should write a query letter to capture an agent's attention. And I followed this blog for many years, even when I wasn't doing much writing, because it was entertaining, but also because... 
it was interesting. And it's, it, it was the first thing that introduced me to the path of traditional publishing. And not only did I learn how to write an effective query letter through that, but I also feel like I use those tips in my writing in general. Um, like the tips that the blog sort of encourages are things like, you know, getting to the point and like engaging the reader immediately. And I feel like I use a lot of a lot of that in my original writing too. So mm. I really like the Query Shark blog and it's still active. I just checked it like yesterday and they're still doing queries on there, which is really cool. Um, and then I think that gave me a bit of a foothold to know how to go about like researching the publishing process because now I knew what querying was. So I could Google things with more of an informed Googling, <laughs> more informed Google searches, you could say. But really it was through Googling. Like I would look up successful authors and authors I admired and try to find um, interviews where they talked about their publishing journeys, which is why me being on this podcast feels very full circle for me. And I would just like read through like everything I could find. I, I usually like recommend Susan Dannard's website to people because she has like a huge amount of really valuable information about the whole publication process and writing and revision and stuff like that. Um, I think a lesser known one is Gloria Chow. She has a whole section on her website called Writer's Nook, and it has equally like really good information on publishing. So it was really through just like a lot of Googling in my spare time. And sometimes when I did not have time to spare that I found out about the publishing process and figured out like what I should do and how I should approach it. So then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from then to signing your first book contract? So with that first book I wrote, which was a young adult contemporary fantasy, uh, my only goal was really to write a book, to physically just get down like, you know, like a 70 or 80K book and then see what I could revise from there. So that's what I did. And it took me a couple of months to do that. It was a complete hot mess, but that's okay. That's what revising is for. And so I revised it myself a bunch of times. And then I was lucky enough to have some fandom friends that I that had been my beta readers in fandom. They also read this book for me. And then I revised based on that feedback. And then I got to a point where I didn't really know what else to do from there or how to approach more revision because I knew it wasn't like ready yet, but I also didn't know like what else I should do. Um, and at that point, I decided I wanted to have someone with a bit more of a professional eye or an industry eye to look at my work before I tried to submit it to agents. Now, I didn't have any like contacts in the industry. I didn't know any authors. Like I literally had zero connections whatsoever. So I decided to try to apply to some mentorships. And this is where me being on writer Twitter was really useful. I had joined mm -hmm. like in 2016 and I didn't like have any friends on there, but I just quietly followed people and started to, you know, put my ear to the ground and look out for opportunities. And that's how I heard about things like Pitch Wars and like DV Pitt and even just individual authors who were offering mentorships. And that is how I started to apply to mentorships. So some of them I got rejected from and then Finally, I got a mentorship with Meredith Ireland, who is the author of The Jasmine Project and Everyone Hates Kelsey Miller. And she was the first person really to see potential in me. Um, and that, that meant a lot to me as a newbie writer who didn't know anyone in the industry. So she took me on as her DV Pitt mentee in 2018. So we basically revised my book together for a couple of months and we worked on pitches and writing my query letter. I'm really grateful for her experience and feedback because even though I thought I was, you know, fairly decent at writing a query letter at that point, I still 
quite clearly had a long way to go. So she helped me put all that stuff together so that we were ready by the time DV Pitt came around. Um, and for anyone who maybe doesn't know or isn't familiar, um, DV Pitt is a Twitter pitch event that still runs. And basically, it's for creators who are from historically unre- underrepresented communities to pitch their work on Twitter for agents to look at, basically. So that's what mm-hmm. we did. I pitched in DV Pit April 2018. And again, I'm very grateful for Meredith because if it wasn't for her boosting my work, I'm not sure anyone would have seen any of my pitches. But as it was, I got some likes from agents. And later that day in the evening, I just sent out a bunch of queries, some of them to DV Pit agents who had liked my pitch and some to who like who were just on my to query list. And then the wait started, of course. I was definitely somebody who was checking my email like literally every five seconds. It was <laughs> not healthy, but I mean, what can I say? That's what I did. Um, so I got like a fair number of partial requests and full requests and things went fairly slowly. So I think it was really four months later that I first got a partial request from my now agent, Jennifer Azantian. By that time, I was not like overly excited by a partial request. I just sent it. Um, and also, like, I didn't really expect Jennifer to be somebody who would want to take me on. She was never on my original query list because she was close to submissions. She had just liked my mm. pitch in DV Pit. So that's why I sent it to her. And also, I didn't really think that I was somebody who would fit with her list. Like, she had a lot of, like, epic fantasy, adult fantasy sort of stuff on her list at that time. And I wasn't sure, like, my body of work would fit in with her. But I, I sent it off. And then a couple of days later, she asked for a full... And again, I was like, oh, that's, that's really fun. That's great. But again, I didn't expect anything to come of it. And then a couple of days after that, I was watching the BBC miniseries North and South, as one does, at 1 a.m. And I finished the series and I was about to go to bed. I checked my Twitter and I saw that she had followed me on Twitter. And I was like, I don't want to think too much about this <laughs> because I won't be able to sleep <laughs> if I do. Mm-hmm. So I just like closed my laptop and went to bed. And then the next morning, like I immediately checked my email and she had basically asked to, for a call with me. So that is how I got my agent, um, Jennifer Azantian. And I got um, two more offers as well from agents after um, that process kind of um, kicked in. Um, but ultimately, I decided to go with Jennifer. And it was a hard choice to make for sure. After so long being rejected, like mm-hmm. to, to have choices suddenly, it's quite a lot to, to handle. So then once I signed with Jennifer, I revised with her for a pretty long time. Like my book was still kind of a mess and it needed like a lot of revisions. So we revised, I think for something like six months before we went on submission with that book, which I think was the best choice to make, of course, to make a book as good as it could be. And then we went on sub. And I don't think I actually like checked my email as obsessively during submission I feel like some part of me knew that this book had already gotten me further than I ever thought it could Mm -hmm. um, to getting an agent. And so like anything after that would have been a bonus almost. And I also, I think I knew some somewhere deep down as well that the, the market maybe really wasn't, it wasn't like the greatest time for the kind of book I was writing because we went on submission, I think in 2019. And I feel like it's a book that would have done better like five, six, seven years before that. So I kind of knew, but we went on sub and I was on sub for a year um, with that book. Never got any like editor calls or like offers. Mm-hmm. We got plenty of really nice passes. And in fact, I, I also, I, I really looked forward to the once a month 
when my agent would send me the passes because they were really like nice passes. <laughs> Often it was just like, we don't know where we would place this on bookshelves. And like, I feel like this reads too middle grade. And some people would say, I feel like this reads too adults. And so there was never like any, like really obvious sort of narrative threaded through any of them. But what really wowed me was like, wow, I'm finally getting my work in front of editors at like big publishing houses in New York. And that's something that like, you know, even a couple of years ago, like I couldn't have imagined. So I think I was just very like happy <laughs> to be there basically and to have my work put in front of, of editors at, at publishing houses. So it didn't like cut me too deeply. Like, because I didn't think this book would sell, I started to like come up with like reasons why it was a good thing. Like I'm one of those people who like will always look for the bright side in things. <laughs> so before the book went on submission, I like wrote a letter to myself that which I titled in case the book doesn't sell. And then I went through like all the reasons I was glad that I'd written this book and all the experience it had given me and all the good things it had given me. And that if it didn't sell, then here are all the ways I could use some of those plot points and use it in different stories so that I would never feel like I truly lost this book. So I didn't feel like overly devastated when the book didn't sell. Like obviously like it's sad, but I think I, I knew at that point that it had given me so much already. So then after a year had passed, I had written another book by that time. And this is the book that eventually became my debut novel. And this book felt like very personal to me. And like I instinctively knew that this was probably one of the more marketable things that I had. <laughs> and that if it didn't sell, I was kind of like, this one, I feel like I would be a bit devastated if it didn't sell. Because if this one doesn't sell, like I don't know what other ideas I have that are like more marketable than this one. So I sent it to my agent and she really liked it. And like she said some things that like made me cry, like happy tears, because it was such a personal book for me. And then we went on sub with that book in kind of like June or July of 2020. And around that time, also, we wrapped up submission for my first book. And got like a couple last passes, which were again, like very nice passes. And I think it was really just the market at the time. So say la vie, really. And then with that second book, we were on submission for actually less than two months, which is of course a pretty like, not very, um, <laughs> not very long time in submission definitions, especially when the pandemic had just started at that time. So yeah. It was like, I think six weeks or so into it when I knew that there was editors taking it to acquisitions. And then I was at work when my agent sent me an email that just said, call me. And I kind of knew at that point. So I picked up the phone and called her <laughs> and uh, found out that that was my first offer for the book. And so things moved kind of quickly after that. We got a couple of more offers um, on the book. Eventually, one of the publishing houses, Penguin, preempted the book. So we mm. went with their preempt offer. And yeah, that's how, I, that's how I got my first book contract. Awesome. Can you read your successful query letter for us? Yes. Dear Jennifer, thank you for liking my hashtag DV pit pitch. Jeannie Lowe and Assassin's Blade. A ruthless empress once turned her 17-year-old magic wielder Cosette into a snake. And you thought your boss sucked. Now, to break her indenture, Cosette must double-cross the boy who freed her. Hashtag DVPit, hashtag YA, hashtag fantasy. I hope the crescendants will suit your list. 17-year-old magic wielder Cosette Constantin isn't exactly on friendly terms with her boss, Empress Ruby. Not since Cosette botched an assassination attempt on the Empress's behalf. As punishment, Ruby turned her into a snake, dumped her in the Australian desert, and never looked back. Talk about a demotion. Several years of dead rat dinners later, a group of magic wielders show up and turn Cosette back into a human. The catch? 
She has to help them overthrow Ruby's rule of their magic world. The sticking point, uprising against all-powerful Ruby, could only lead to death. So when Ruby finds her and asks her to be her spy instead, Cosette agrees to double-cross the rebellion. It should be easy to get back into the Empress's good graces. All Cosette has to do is gather intel, teach the local eye candy some rudimentary magic to keep up appearances, and hand over the entire rebellion when the time is right. And not to get attached to any of them, but Cosette's not worried about that. From royalty to assassin to snake, and now spy, she's always survived. But when living in the resistance shows her there's more to life, Cosette will have to choose between her own skin and something greater. The Crescendence is a 94,000 word YA contemporary fantasy with series potential. Readers of The Epic Crush of Jeannie Lowe and The Assassin's Blade will enjoy this book. And then just my little bio. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah. So how has your experience been since signing that contract? Especially let us know what surprised you along the way. So I think the first thing that actually surprised me was before I signed the contract, and that's how long it took for me to get the contract. So (laughs) I got my offer in summer of 2020, and I didn't sign my contract until summer of 2021. And that's when I like submit, that's also when like my deal announcement came out. So my book was already sent to copy edits by the time people knew about it. (laughs) Um, So that took a really long time. But I think it was actually nice in a way to just like work on the book without anyone knowing about it. So I don't really mind, although it kind of killed me to keep the secret that long. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like the actual process went fairly smoothly. I think the thing that surprised me the most was that I heard so many horror stories about writers not being included in things like publicity and marketing and not be included in like certain processes of the publishing journey. And I was expecting that to happen, but I feel like I was pleasantly surprised because I was expecting the worst. My publisher, they really involved me in things like the um, cover design process. I got to send them like documents of like, you know, different inspirations and different covers I liked and got to explain to them my priorities with the cover. They took my input seriously, I felt with the cover and also with Um, like the copy of the book too. Like I remember they sent, like I think it must've been like old copy from when my agent was like first submitting the book. But basically like I basically rewrote the whole copy and I was like, is this okay? And they're like, yeah. And that's the copy that's used in the cover flap of my book. I would say another thing that surprised me was the publicity and marketing piece. Again, Mm -hmm. because I'd heard so many not so great things about not really knowing what's going on at your publisher. When it came to a couple months before my book came out, um, the publicist who was assigned to me actually left her position. So I was a bit worried, but then they hired a PR company, Books Forward, to um, do the publicity for my book. And they were great. Like they, like we had a meeting with them and they involved me at every step. And I always knew what was going on and what they were submitting me to. And they were always asking for my feedback. And so I really felt included as part of that process. Uh, which I was really grateful for and appreciated because that's how it should be. But, you know, it's not always the case. Um, So that was really nice. And I also had a Canadian publicist as well, who uh, was really, was really great as well. So I think I was surprised by some of the more, (laughs) some of the pleasant things in my journey, um, just because I I was so primed for like the worst. (laughs) It sounds Mm -hmm. bad, but like you Mm -hmm. hear so many terrible things from like your fellow authors. And it's like, it's a very common thing. I just feel like I was very lucky with that part of my journey. Nice. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. Are you a pantser or a plotter? A plantser, aka both. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Underwriter. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? 
nighttime, although that's starting to change because of my old age. Put that in quotes. When starting a new project, do you typically start with a character or plot or a concept or something else first? It depends. Sometimes the concept, sometimes the characters. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. When writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? It depends on my mood. When it comes to the first draft, are you a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Definitely get it down. What tools or software do you use to draft? I'm a Google Docs girl through and through. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising, 100%. I hate drafting. Do you write in sequential order? Do you hop around? My approach is sequential, but if I get inspiration for a scene later, I won't hesitate to write it first. Mm. And a final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Introvert. All right. Now we're going to talk about the second cue of the podcast. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey? And do you feel like they were realized or you overcame them or how did they shake out? So I think my greatest worry is one that I don't worry about anymore. But especially growing up, I felt like I had to choose between writing and other serious careers and other things I wanted to do in my life. Mm -hmm. So I was always waiting for the day when I would have to give up writing because it was taking too much of my time or it was taking too much energy away for things, from things that would have been more productive. And I think that was only exacerbated because so many people in my life also made it sound like I would have to choose. I remember being in my late teens and people, like mentors even, asking me like what I was going to do after I graduated and when I said, like, I'm planning to do like a science major, <laughs> like some people expressed disappointment that I wasn't doing like arts or like any of the things that I had done in high school. And so that, that sort of, again, fed into this worry or fear that eventually I would have to give it up for more serious pursuits. And that was like something I couldn't really imagine doing because, you know, even though I had so many interests, writing was and still is part of me. I can't imagine not doing it. It feeds my soul. It's how I process the world and things that have happened to me. It's just such a huge intrinsic part of who I am that I was just dreading the day that I would have to give it up for practical things. And I think as time went on, you know, life did become busier. I had to rejig things. I had to learn how to prioritize things. I think I started to learn that I didn't necessarily have to let go of that. I just had to learn how to organize my life in such a way that I could include it. I think one... One analogy I really like is Nora Roberts. She has like a more busy life than I do. You know, she's got like lots of kids and family. <laughs> I, I don't have that kind of like really busy life. I don't have kids. I have like a really supportive family who like help me. So it's not like I'm, I'm a privileged person, I would say. But even so, like it's hard to balance things. So Nora Roberts said that it's really like juggling, juggling a bunch of balls, but you have to know which balls are glass and which ones are plastic because you're going to drop the ball sometimes. And it's just important to know which ones are which because you can drop a plastic ball. It won't break. You can pick it up later, but a glass one will shatter and you have to know the difference so that you can know which ones you can drop at any given time. And that really resonated with me because what I've learned is that there is no static balance. There is no one point in life where everything is completely at balance, every single part of your life, writing and the non-writing parts. That's not true. It's actually more like at any given moment, you're completely out of whack. You're completely off balance. But in the long term, looking back, you'll look at everything that happened and say there was balance there. I think my personal analogy is maybe a bit more nerdy. 
It's more mathematical. It's more like a sine wave for me, a sine wave being a mathematical curve. And it kind of oscillates between, if you, you know, picture a graph, it oscillates between uh, like a one and a minus one, for example. So it'll just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's generally never at the average of zero. It's just back and forth. But the average of a sine wave is zero. So that's how I kind of view my life as well, is that sometimes I'm not doing any writing at all. And sometimes I'm doing a lot of writing and not much of anything else. But it <laughs> depends on whatever like is most demanding my attention at that time. And certainly that's a learning process that is ongoing. I don't think I have ever achieved like a full, complete overall balance. There are times when I drop a ball and it's glass and it shatters and I'm like, whoops. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the point is that you learn from that. It's not like you have to give up everything. You just put all the balls away now. No, it's like you, you learn which ones are glass, which ones are plastic. And you just learn from those mistakes and, and carry it forward with you. So even when I make mistakes, I don't like beat myself up too much over it. I just kind of take that as a lesson and move on. So even though that was quite a, it was a, quite a large worry for me growing up and only until recently that I have learned that I can make peace with my process. Mm, nice. Now it's time for the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? I don't feel like I have any like super unique quirks. Maybe something that's more uncommon is that I like to use different fonts for different drafts. So for example, mm. on the most recent book I've been working on, the first draft I wrote completely in Calibri. And I think that's actually a habit I got from writing fan fiction because like Calibri was the default font in Word. Mm -hmm. So I just started writing my first drafts in Calibri and it gives me some kind of like psychological like flexibility. Like I don't feel like I need to get the words right. I can just get them down, which is what I need in a first draft because I hate drafting. And then after the first drafts, I'll move into a different font. For this most recent one I was using, I think it's called Georgia. <laughs> Georgia, I think. Sometimes Garamond if I'm feeling spicy. <laughs> um, and I'll kind of alternate between different fonts for different drafts. And then when I'm getting closer to sending that work to somebody, whether it's my agent or to a beta reader or something like that, then I will turn it to Times New Roman because Times New Roman is like no BS, right? Like you can't dress up your mistakes <laughs> anymore. Like you have to like confront it head on. And Times New Roman is like the, like, it's like forcing yourself to look the work in the eyes and like see the rest of the mistakes <laughs> that you've been avoiding. So that's kind of what I do. I also will sometimes change the page color. So from white to like pale green or pale blue, I'm not one of those people who like gives drafts like a lot of time to rest in between them. I'll usually just jump right into the next one, partially because my poor memory is actually like a benefit because I don't remember anything that happened, <laughs> but also because I change the font and I change the color of the page, I can kind of trick myself into thinking this is like a whole new thing and I can look mm -hmm. at it with fresh eyes. So I guess that's sort of a quirk. I feel like some other people do that as well. So I'm not sure it's totally unique, but. That is really fun. I had heard of people drafting in Comic Sans because yeah, it made them like not take it so seriously. I feel like Comic Sans is worse. I, I don't, I get tried that and it worked a little bit, uh -huh. but then at some point I was like, this is weird. <laughs> like, I couldn't take anything <laughs> I was writing seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if you're writing something funny yeah. or um, really lighthearted. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? So I think the lowest parts of my journey have always been when I try to write something based on someone else's expectation rather than what I want to write, 
which is something that comes up more after you're published and after there is expectations put on you based on your first book and what people expect to see from you, what people want to see from you. And so there was multiple times where I tried to change my ideas to suit like marketing whims or publisher whims. And of course I tried, I wanted to make it work. I wanted to, you know, get like another book out there that would be more marketable, et cetera, et cetera. But every time invariably that I did that, I wound up lost and ticked off and the closest to burned out from writing that I've ever been. And I think there are some writers who can do it very well, who are able to make their ideas flexible enough that they can accommodate those publisher and marketing whims. Um, I think it's like a very specific skill, which I admire, but I don't have myself at this time. So for me, it actually became a choice between, am I going to change my ideas to make it more marketable, but maybe not something that I love as much? Or am I going to be stubborn and stick to my guns and write what's authentic to me and the stories that I originally intended and risk that these stories may never be published? And for me, that choice was obvious. I think we all go into publishing, obviously wanting like all the things that come with traditional publishing, like to be financially compensated for our hard work, to get our work in front of more readers, to have recognition, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, those things are very valid. But for me, like even though I wanted those things, I realized I couldn't lose sight of the reason that I came here in the first place. And that was the love of storytelling. Because even with, even if you're like, you know, everything's going well for you in your publishing career, all those highs and all those lows, at the end of the day, they're going to go away. Everyone's going to go away and it's going to be you and the writing left over. And you have to be okay with that. You have to love what you're doing. And I think that's ultimately what will give me longevity in this industry is that throughout all the highs and lows, there is this intrinsic, this internal locus of control, which is the stories that I'm writing. And as long as I have that, I will be here. Oh, that's awesome. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you'd like to share with listeners so maybe they can avoid making the same ones? Yeah, so many. But (laughs) um, I think one that I'd like to highlight is that I feel like I took too much unsolicited advice a little too Mm -hmm. seriously. And I think this affected me earlier in my journey when I was a teenager and around the time that I feel like I kind of sort of gave up on writing for a little bit because I had attended workshops and I had gotten so much advice from like writers and some authors who sort of gave their suggestions as blanket advice and served it that way and made it sound like you need to do X in order to do Y, like you need to do it. There's no like ifs, ands, or buts, like you have to. And I felt quite restricted in that. Like I felt like if I can't, you know, outline this way. If I can't plan things this way, then I can't write. And I have to do those steps first before I get to the writing. And that's what stopped me, I think, from writing for quite a long time. So I was just bored by that. And I think actually, when I went into fan fiction, I'm so grateful for going into fan fiction, because there's no rules in fan fiction, you do whatever you want to do. And that gave me the freedom to find my own process. And to realize that you can throw all those rules out the window because everyone has a different journey and there is no one size fits all advice. And I feel like it's irresponsible to give it that way. And there's still people, unfortunately, who give advice that way. New York Times bestselling authors who have seen give like you have to do this to be successful kind of advice. And I just want people to know that that's not true. I think you should take all advice with a grain of salt, knowing that just because something worked for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for you. I think you should listen to advice if you know you ask for it or it seems useful. But if it doesn't seem useful, then let it go. You don't need it. I wish that I had heard that from someone early in my journey. Mm. I don't necessarily like regret it. You know, everything you know worked out <laughs> the way I think it was supposed to, but it would have been beneficial for someone to have told me that. 
Mm -hmm. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? So apart from from what I've already mentioned, I think Mm -hmm. one more tip that I would say is to read your contracts. I think it's so important. Like I, I think, you know, as artists, maybe we don't pay as much attention to the contract part because we're artists, we want to just create and do our work. Um, but it's so important. I think not only, you know, because contracts can have red flags in them and, you know, things that you really shouldn't have in a contract, because that part, you know, an agent, a good agent will help you deal with that. But even with a good agent who's taking all the red flags from your contract, I think it's really important to know what's in your contract, to know what happens in the worst case scenario, like you don't, you know, hand in a book or, you know, whatever happens, your book gets canceled, whatever. And also in the best case scenarios, like what do they owe you now, like in terms of bonuses and whatever. I think it empowers you to make decisions in unpredictable circumstances if you understand your contracts well. And I was surprised when when I got my first contract, I um, asked my agent, I was like, can we have a phone call where you just where you just go through this entire contract with me? I have a bunch of questions. And she told me that I was the first person to ever ask her to do that. I was a little bit surprised by that, to be honest, but she was very patient. And we went through that contract for like literally an hour and a half. So I could ask all my silly questions, but I'm so glad I did that because it has helped me later on down the road. And even with my agency contract, like in 2018, when I signed with my agent, although my agent is, you know, great, and she's reputable, et cetera, et cetera. I still had like, like an entertainment lawyer, like look over the contract. I think it was like a $500 fee. I had the financial resources to do that. So I was, I was privileged that way. But I'm glad I did that. um, Because again, it helped me understand every piece of it. And we actually changed some terms in my agency contract too, which is also totally normal and fine to do if you want to. And my agent was great with that. And I feel like it's a red flag if they're not willing to like look at the contract with you. That's what I would recommend doing. Understanding your contracts and don't get so lost in like, you're so grateful that someone's looking at your work, someone's taking you on, that you forget that detail. Because I think it's easy to forget when you've spent so long trying to break into this industry that you deserve to be there, you deserve a seat at the table, and you deserve to be treated fairly. So don't get too excited. Take a pause, read your contracts, read your contracts, read your contracts. All right. You've mentioned some of them already, but this is not a business that we succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? So many people. And I feel like whenever people ask me this, I'm like terrified to answer because I know I'm going to miss people who are really important, (laughs) who are just not at the forefront of my mind right now. (laughs) So I will name some of them a non-exhaustive list. I would say first and foremost, my brother, Gerbind, is a really big support to me and has been since we were kids. He is that person that I tell every single little thing to, like every little micro high, micro low, like random emails I get. Like he's like, he's the person I talk to about it. I feel like everyone kind of needs someone like that um, just to talk things through with. Um, So I'm really happy that I have him. And then my parents, of course, as I mentioned a couple of times, have supported me in multiple ways that I was able to pursue more than one career at once. I would also like to point out the fandom communities who really boosted me and encouraged me to pursue writing and some of those people who are still, you know, following me with my original work to this day and their feedback and like hearing what they think of my original books is like so meaningful to me and my beta readers as well, who beta read, beta read uh, my debut novel. There are also people from fandom who I still am friends with to this day. Meredith Ireland, I already mentioned my mentor, D.V. Pitt. 
um, was the first person to see my potential. I'm so grateful for that. My agent, Jennifer Azantian, and her partner, Ben Baxter, who have been so supportive and such fierce advocates for my work. My team at Viking, particularly, I want to shout out the publicity and marketing because I didn't get a chance to properly like shout them out in my acknowledgements. Because one of the things about traditional publishing is that you write your acknowledgements like way before your book comes out. So you actually miss like a huge group of significant people who you don't meet until later. Everybody in the publicity at Viking and Penguin Canada, I'm so grateful for their help and support as well. And also some fellow authors who have supported me along the way, such as the Desi Kidlet community, people like Priyanka Taslim, Adiba Jagadar. These are all people who have been really, really generous with their time and their support. Yeah, those are some of the people I want to shout out. Oh, I want to shout out as well um, a friend I met in the last year or so in my like a real non-writing life who is a big reader. Her name is Salia Alaboye, and she helped me to organize my first launch event um, with my book and made like people come to it. So it was actually a success. Um, so I'm really, really, really grateful for her. Awesome. All right. Since your query letter was not for TJ Power, do you want to tell us about that book before you go? Sure. So TJ Power, Something to Prove, is a young adult contemporary novel. It is about TJ Power, who is a pretty popular debater. And one day at her school, she becomes the subject of a meme along with her cousin, who does not remove her body hair. And TJ is seen as the expectation of dating an Indian girl because she's pretty and she removes her body hair and all this stuff. And her cousin is seen as the reality of dating an Indian girl. And even though TJ is seen as like the beautiful one in this picture, she has a bit of an identity crisis and she decides to stop removing her body hair in order to prove to the world, but mostly to herself, that she can be beautiful just the way she is and that her life wouldn't change if she wasn't traditionally beautiful. And then of course she finds out that there are many hiccups along the way in that journey. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Jasmine's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash Nicholas. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.